On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about a local politician's private member's bill that crosses all party lines. It is a nonpartisan move, but it is an important move. It is about youth, child, pediatric palliative care, and a need to have a system across this province. You'll hear from Sandy Shaw in just a moment. We are also going to be chatting with Glenn Grunwald, once upon a time, the general manager of the Toronto Raptors, the guy who traded for Vince Carter. You may have heard of him. He was also the athletics director of McMaster, and now he's the CEO of Canada Basketball, about what this whole thing with the Raptors means. And he talks a little bit about what it was like back in the early days when the Raptors were, well, <laughs> stay tuned. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm going to start the show today by chatting a little bit about pediatric palliative care, pediatric palliative care. It is a, it is a bleak topic. There's no getting around it. It's, we are talking about children with terminal illness, dying children. There is just no way to not make that an upsetting topic. However, it is also reality, unfortunately, for many families around this province, for many people, it is something they are going to have to deal with. Whether it's bleak, whether it's depressing, it is going to be a reality. And so a local MPP for whom this topic is near and dear to her heart, and she'll explain in a moment, will be bringing forward tomorrow at the Ontario Legislature a private member's bill to create a provincial pediatric palliative care Strategy. She is well known to listeners of the show. She is a regular here. We love having her on. We love having her back. It's been a while. Uh, she is Sandy Shaw, the MPP for West Hamilton, Ancaster, Dundas. Sandy, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I am great. Thanks for coming on. Always good to have you back on here. It's always fun. Uh, you call this that you're bringing forward, you call this the Nancy Rose Act. Who is Nancy Rose? So Nancy Rose was my baby sister. Um, she died in 1975 at the age of 17 months. And I was about 14 years old uh, when she died. So I have, you know, very clear and vivid memories of, of Nancy. Uh, you know, this is something that um, was a, a huge, huge tragedy for my family, a huge loss. And uh, all these years later, I guess it's about 40 Four years later, uh, you know, the, the memory and the loss has really not diminished much over the years. I would be hesitant maybe to ask you to go into that a little bit. Had you, I know you've been talking about it, so I'm assuming you're somewhat comfortable talking about this, but what, what do you remember about those days when she was very ill? I, I mean, I'm happy to share. I, I would just say that, you know, it is true that when we talk about this kind of tragedy, we, we often say, oh, it's unspeakable tragedy. And it's funny because that is the case. Often people, uh, parents that suffer from this kind of loss, aren't really prepared to speak about it. And sometimes the people that, uh, you know, don't want to hear it, there, there's some of these uh, details are very difficult. But I think that's one of the important things about this bill is that we allow people to, to share their memories. And so I, I do remember Nancy. I remember her so well. She was, uh, she was just this sunny little girl. She was really friendly. I just remember her being so friendly. She was happy when anyone came in the room, happy to meet you. And she was just this, just this beautiful, uh, easygoing uh, girl. She had blonde hair and bright blue eyes. And uh, I, I remember, you know, I was, her, I was her big sister. So I remember, I remember her very well. Uh, unfortunately, you know, she was diagnosed pretty early in her young life with a rare form of leukemia. So she, she suffered a lot. You know, she was being treated at Sick Kids Hospital. Uh, she had 
Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but at least one round of chemotherapy, possibly two. But the prognosis for her wasn't great. Uh, they didn't have much success in, in those years. And so, um, you know, after having a wonderful 17 months with her and my parents, uh, I can't speak enough about the courage and the character of my parents, ensured that she was she was just part of our family. We went on vacations in her short life, uh, but it was clear near the end that uh, you know she was she was near her end of end of life. And you know the last few uh, weeks and months were were really difficult to watch, um, you know, to watch her get sicker and be in pain and suffering. And you mentioned just a moment ago, and, and I think you're a hundred percent right. And I think that's probably a lot of what has led to this. Uh, we talk about children or babies dying, and it is really. Uh, it is entirely unpleasant. And even as I'm doing this, I'm thinking, oh boy, you know, I don't know how many people who are listening are in that position right now, but when we talk about it, it probably makes it painful for them. This is something nobody wants to talk about. They don't, but, you know, not talking about it won't make the pain go away. (laughs) The loss is there. You know, the loss will always be there. It's a lifelong pain that doesn't go away. And I think the ability to share those difficult memories, um, is really important because you know what these 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 children whether their lives were short or long their lives mattered and it was important and we loved them and it's really important that people feel that have suffered this loss feel that it's okay to talk about it that people won't feel uncomfortable and that that really they it's their way of celebrating the the life even if it was a short a life of, of a child it's really important that they feel that it's okay to to share those uh, those memories. Sandy, what's shocking to me, though, about this, there was a story in the spec today. People can find it online if they want to read it. There was a doctor who was quoted, and here's a quote from him. The overwhelming majority of primary care practitioners are uncomfortable with looking after a dying child. So it's not even just about talking about it. Even those in the medical field, when they face this, of doing the stuff, the medical stuff, they, are dif- they find it very difficult. Right, and I think the the very so to be very clear about what I feel like that was Dr. Greenberg, who was a, a phenomenal man, and who by sheer coincidence was at, uh, was at the hospital at the kids when my my daughter was being my daughter my sister was being treated there at the time. So we've made this huge connection. But what he means to say is that uh, you know when we talk about quality access of, of ec- equitable access to palliative care. One of the other things we're talking about is quality of care. Mm. And so if you're in a far, uh, you know, rural community or a far north community, um, often the medical care providers, this is not their area of expertise. They haven't been trained in uh, attending a child's death. They, they're not pediatric or not palliative, but still it's their responsibility to support families through this. So I think that what, what Dr. Greenberg was intending to say was that we need to ensure that uh, children that are in uh, uh, all across the province have the kinds of medical practitioners that are able to um, be there for parents uh, in the last final um, hours of a child's life, which can be which can be very very uh, difficult to be to be near. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting with Sandy Shaw, MPP for. West Hamilton, Ancaster, Dundas, who tomorrow at the legislature, Queen's Park, will be bringing forward a private member's bill to help create or hope to create a strategy around pediatric palliative care uh, based on, and if you missed the first part of the interview, based on a very personal story from Sandy. Uh, So Sandy, when you do this, what is the strategy then that you and that other people who would support this, what is the strategy we were looking to get into place here? Mm -hmm. 
You know, so Scott, let me just talk about, it because it's helpful to explain why this is so needed uh, the day that Nancy died. You know, and we, my parents knew that Nancy was, this was end of life for her and that she was, uh, you know, her days were uh, uh, becoming shorter. And the day that she died, uh, you know, it was a really difficult day and she was just crying, crying all day. And my parents were trying to soothe her um, and they weren't able to because she probably was, you know, in, in a significant pain. And I remember as a young girl myself that, you know, my parents then just, they, they bundled her up and they were taking her to the hospital in the car. And this is, a, again, a difficult de- detail, but I know that my uh, sister died in my mother's arms in the car at the side of the road because they weren't able to, they didn't make it to the hospital um, to, to have someone help attend, you know, her in, in their final hours. And so I... When I decided to look into this and pursue this, I, I have to say that, um, you know, we haven't really come that far uh, since those days. And, in fact, I think most people are shocked to find out that we don't have a provincial strategy to deal with, uh, uh, you know, young children uh, that are uh, ill and dying. And so the the purpose of this strategy, this this uh, provincial pediatric hospice strategy, is to ensure that, you know, like families that um, – like never have to suffer through this again. And I just have to say, since I've put this bill forward, I've heard from so many parents uh, that are bereaved parents that have gone through uh, uh, experiences that, you know, that are unimaginable for most of us and that the need is still there. And so what we're hoping more than anything is that we can get a funded comprehensive strategy. Because the way it works right now, it's a patchwork. There's no, there's no integration. There's no clear funding. You know, it's, I was also shocked to learn that in the province of Ontario, there's only three hospices that will deal with children. There's only I, I was going to ask you hospices. that because yeah. my, now my wife's grandmother passed away in a hospice here in town at mm-hmm. Bob Kemp, and there were no children in there. And I, it just dawned on me when you brought this forward that I thought, do we allow kids into hospices? So, yes, we do, but I think the idea is that, that adult hospices are not appropriate for children, you know, so we need to have hospices for children that really attend to their specific, very specific needs. You know, hospices have to have spaces that can understand the, the different illness trajectory of kids. They have to be able to have siblings there, a family atmosphere, so it's it's not the same. You can't just, you know, you, you have to respect that it's not exactly the same as adult palliative care, so we need to really um, do this do this right for for young children and their families. So there are only three pediatric hospices um, across the province, and you know the vast majority of uh, I think it's something like I'm going to say 80% of children in the province that could benefit from pediatric palliative care. Uh, are not receiving those services just because of the lack of resource and the lack of a strategy. So this bill, at the very least, is trying to raise uh, the awareness and sort of just to to um, to, to challenge us as a society mm. that is, shouldn't this be our highest um, priority? That you know, alleviating the suffering of children and families. Uh, when they in their in their most difficult days, and so that's what we're hoping that that, that we will take what exists already, all of these fantastic doctors and centers of excellence that are doing all of this work in the absence of any kind of leadership from the government that that we can actually help uh, move that into operation for for uh, these families. Sandy, we obviously, if a kid is, if a child, a baby, an infant, whomever is desperately ill, we want them to be comfortable. But how much of this is for the child? And how much of this is the hospice scenario? So a parent and siblings aren't like your mother who has to watch their child die in a car, and it's for also the parents. 
exactly. Well, that that is precisely the point. You know, um, that it is about the, you know, <laughs> I mean, we're talking about children from you know, from prenatal to possibly, or you know, young adulthood. So there's different ages in which those children can express their fears and their hopes uh, for their for their life. And so that varies. But, you know, it's not, in some cases when you're treating an adult, in most cases when you're treating an adult, that adult can make decisions for their own treatment and their own care. But when you have children that are often not able to make those decisions, can it, it, the, the, the supports that parents need to make those, those um, unbelievably difficult decisions on behalf of their child, um, it's extraordinary what, what the courage that they have to uh, show to, to make those decisions. And so it is 100% about supporting uh, a supporting an extended family. And it's uh, Sandy, I have to jump yeah. in because we're just about out of time, but I okay. did want to ask you one more thing, and I wish we could sure. go on by this. That's okay. This story was spurred by what your family went through, and yes. especially your mother. Is you, are your parents alive? Does your mother I, know? Has she been able yeah. to know you're doing this? She does know. My parents, my mom and dad, both are alive, and they know this, and they're so, you know, I wasn't, I was a little apprehensive about this, whether it would be, you know, traumatic for them or bring up memories that they didn't want to share, but they're honestly so proud and relieved, and my mom said that, you know, that we can finally talk about this in in such an open way, and as a family, we're sharing stories and memories that we didn't before in the past, so in many ways, you know, this is a celebration for our family, but my parents, my mom and dad, I keep, you know, I've told you how wonderful they are. They also understand that they hope that you know, the pain and the loss that they went through will serve to prevent or help other families in such another similar, uh, just terrible, dire situation. It is a terrific idea, and it's got nothing to do with partisan politics. It's just a nothing. really good idea. Sandy Shaw, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for doing this. So, yeah, always a pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Glenn Grunwald, who was with the Toronto Raptors, in the very, very, very beginning, then became the general manager, now is with basketball, or Canada basketball, not basketball Canada, Canada basketball. Uh, these, are, uh, these are glory days for basketball in this country, as you well know. Toronto Raptors begin the championship series against the Golden State Warriors tomorrow evening. Hint, well after our show is done. So you can tune in tomorrow and not miss a thing. It's perfect. And I'm assuming many of you will be watching. Even It's so interesting to me how many people have talked about this who were not necessarily basketball fans, but who are suddenly, you know, jumping on board because who doesn't love a winner? Who doesn't love being part of a winner? It's exciting. Even if you, it's the same that happened with the Blue Jays, it will be the same, I guarantee it, if it, if the Leafs ever get anywhere. Maybe even win a playoff series for once in our lifetime. It's exciting. Let me, oh, by the way, uh, many, many, many cities, by the way, many cities are hosting their own Jurassic Parks. You've heard about this? They're, they're doing mock-ups or their own versions of it. Burlington has one called Burlesque Park. It sounds a little like burlesque. I, assume, I am very confident there will be no burlesque dancing at Burlington's Jurassic Park. Unless, of course, the Council of Burlington is changing things up dramatically and making this very different, but I, I don't believe so. Anyway, uh, Hamilton has decided to take a pass, which is unfortunate. We really, you know, we've got the forecourt of City Hall... Last year during the Bulldogs playoffs, they had a screen up there. It should have been done. Could be done. Let's hope. 
Uh, quiz question, and then we're going to move on here. Here is your quiz question this evening. Now, ironically, I didn't realize this yesterday. Last night on the show, if you were listening, we were chatting about Everest. That photo that I thought was photoshopped of all these hundreds of people waiting to scale the summit of Mount Everest. Well, it turns out today is the anniversary of Sir Edmund Hillary making it to the top of Everest. 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary didn't finished that unbelievable feat. He was the first one to do it. Your quiz question today is, Sir Edmund Hillary finished that climb and did that entire climb with a Sherpa guide, a local guide. What was the name of that guide? Almost as famous as Sir Edmund Hillary. What was the name of the guide who accompanied him to the top of Everest? We will accept his first name or his full name. Either one is fine. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Name the Sherpa guide who accompanied Sir Edmund Hillary to the summit of Mount Everest on this day in 1953. 905-645-3221, star 9900. In the meantime, let us move along to the news of the week, maybe of the month. I don't know. It'll be the sports news of the year. I'm willing to bet that already we've got our winner for the Canadian Press Team of the Year. Will be the Toronto Raptors, I assume. What do you have to do to beat the Raptors out from being the Team of the Year right now? It's exciting days for basketball. And I'm guessing there's probably not too many people more excited than my next guest. He is the President and CEO of Canada Basketball. He was previously the Director of Athletics and Recreation right here in Hamilton at McMaster University. And before that, he was the General Manager of the Toronto Raptors. His name is Glenn Grunwald. He joins us. Glenn, how are you today? Hey, Scott, I'm doing very well. What is, Did something happen with the Raptors? What were you saying? Yeah, I, I, was, I heard something about it. I thought you were going to be able to help us out. <laughs> oh, man, it's a great time to be a basketball fan in, in Canada. So, yeah, it's really, really wonderful to see and so happy for all the Raptor fans that are sort of uh, enjoying this, this moment. You know, I've heard so many people who were around uh, near the beginning of the Raptors whole experience back in 1995. And I keep hearing them get asked if they ever thought this day would come. And I think that may be a bit of a silly question. You were there. I'm, I'm assuming that you did expect this day would come. Otherwise, why would you have ever signed on to be part of the team? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, we always had hoped that we knew it was going to be a tough slog. You know, the, the, the way the expansion agreement started out, uh, you know, was put us a little bit behind the eight ball in terms of the contracts we had to take. And, and the fact we couldn't get the number one pick, so we knew it'd be a process. I didn't, I didn't know it would take 24 years for us to get to the NBA Finals. Uh, but it's it it kind of goes to show how difficult it is to do that, and and how how few teams have actually won an NBA championship over the past few decades. So it it, it it's a tremendous accomplishment, and all the credit to Masai Jerry and uh, and and uh, Nick Nurse and and every all the players for for getting this far because it it is very difficult to, to sort of break through to be an elite NBA team. And, and hopefully I'll continue on here in the finals. Uh, let's go back to those early days for a moment. Cause again, you were here at the beginning. You were, you were the assistant general manager at the, at the very beginning. Yes. I had the world's longest business title. I was the assistant general manager for basketball operations and the VP of business and legal affairs. So I was doing both. <laughs> Both legal and, and basketball stuff at the beginning. Well, they had to find someone tall enough that when he unfurled the whole thing, it could, it could, you could stand up and still not have it hit the floor. What was it like back then when you walked in? You were an American guy. You played college basketball with Isaiah Thomas. Most people know that. You walk in here, uh, well, here being Toronto, you walk into Canada, you walk into an untapped market where some people know basketball, 
what was it like in those early days? How much teaching did you actually have to do? Well, it was it was a lot of work because it's a startup, a, a business enterprise uh, is 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 a lot of work, and we had a lot of things to get done to sell tickets and sell sponsorships, build an arena, find a place to practice, select a team. It was really a, a lot of uh, hard work, but it was it was great energy and and worked with a lot of wonderful people to to accomplish that, and we and we you know, launched a, I think a, a, a great franchise with a unique brand that's. Uh, sort of distinct from some of the existing sports that uh, were already here. And I think, you know, I saw John Bitto before the game on Saturday night, and we, and he said, Glenn, this is what we dreamed of. This is, this is where we wanted to take this thing, where the fans were so enthusiastic. We had such a good team and, and you know, crowds outside the arena lining up to watch it on the big screen. And uh, it, that's exactly sort of what we had hoped for, that it would become such a, a great sport for so many people to get behind and enjoy and, and get get uh, get a lot out of. There was a colleague of yours from back in those days, a, a day oneer with the Raptors, John Lashway, who was in charge of communications, who I was talking to yesterday. There's a story online and in the paper today. And like you, he's an American guy who came here, didn't know much about the market at the time. And his comment was that when he arrived, the the executives, the very top guys, guys like you, you knew the game, but many of the staff people he described it as saying there was a ton of passion, but not a ton of basketball IQ in the staffers below the executives. Was that your recollection? I think to some degree, yeah. I think we, we did have a lot of good basketball folks too. Uh, but uh, yeah, a lot of people, uh, you know, didn't quite understand, uh, you know, the, the culture of basketball, which is different than some other sports. I think uh, uh, the, the rules are pretty, pretty basic, but uh to understand sort of uh, the people and the teams and the agents and all that kind of stuff, I think uh, that was sort of, I think, more educational for the business folks than anything. What about the fans? Because there was a learning curve, uh, much like, you know, when, when hockey was introduced to Arizona they or Nashville, they had to learn it. It, it was the same for basketball here, right? Yeah, a little bit. I think, you know, I don't think it was quite like uh, the NHL going down to California or Florida where people never played the sport. I think the, the I think there was a basic understanding of basketball here and a lot of good uh, grassroots basketball coaches and people that had played it in the schools and universities and such. So, so it wasn't quite as virgin territory as maybe the NHL in some of the warmer climates. But, but for the average sports fan, uh, yeah, there was there was a learning curve for them. Was there any moment along the way when you're trying to build this thing, whether it was before you even got started or early on, was there ever a moment when you kind of either lay in bed or looked in a mirror or something and said, what have I done? <laughs> well, my, my first year as a general manager in 97, 98, it was, uh, it was a rough year and uh, we wound up 16 and 66 and, you know, it was, uh, you know, one of those situations where everything that could go wrong uh, did go wrong and, and it seemed like it was, uh, it was going to be even tougher sled than the, than the actual startup because uh, the team was doing so poorly. But I always was convinced that the Toronto and Canada was a market that could really support and get behind basketball because, well, it's such a fun sport and, and so much goes on and the personality. So I was always convinced that, uh, that we were going to be successful. I just, you know, we just had to go through some very tough times. Was that the year that you got onto center court at the end of the season and took the microphone and talked to the fans? Yes, and everyone cheered wildly, <laughs> <laughs> or not. Well, I, you know, it, I'll tell you this. Um, 
that always, long before I ever met you, long before I got to know you a little bit, that always struck me as remarkable. And I think a lot of people have said the same thing, that the level of respect for you for doing that, because you don't see that from a lot of other general managers or coaches, that that was a remarkable thing you did. And, and I at the time, I remember thinking, does this guy have the thickest skin in the world or was that torture to stand there and do that? <laughs> no, it was... Uh... I think it was it was good that we did it because the fans did support us and and obviously what had happened that season was not acceptable and I think they needed to know that we were going to do all we could to to get it turned around and and back to something that they could be proud to support and it took it took a year or two but uh, we we did that and and it was uh, it was a good run when 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 we made the playoffs those three seasons and brought in Vince and and had a lot of lot of good times. Uh, you mentioned Vince. There are many people. There was a documentary about it by a Hamilton guy, Sean Menard, uh, the Carter effect. There's a lot of people who say that when the Raptors got Vince Carter, that was really the turning point for basketball in a big way in this country. Is that your sense of it? Do you do you hold do you buy into that theory that getting him really made things take off? I think it was a big help. Yeah, I think he was a transcendent star and. Uh, was, uh, you know, we had a, a great player in Damon Stoudemire, our first draft choice, who was Rookie of the Year. He only lasted a year and a half, unfortunately. But I think we always had, uh, you know, good players that uh, people could get excited about. But but Vince took it to another level, not only in Canada, but across the world. And, and the dunk contest in, what was it, 99, uh, where, where he, in Golden State, where he just lit it all up, he really, you know, showed that uh, that what an exciting sport basketball can be and then the success he had as both a player and and the team success really showed people that it was uh, it was a good sport to get behind and 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 worth 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 their effort and energy to, to support the Raptors you were the guy who made that trade to get him uh, as a result I mean how much pride do you take assuming that he did have some impact on growing basketball how much pride do you take in your role in that then well, I'm happy I was a small part of it, right? And uh, it's 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 like watching a city evolve. It's uh, you know, it's it's Toronto's much different than when I arrived back in '94, uh, and uh, so is the Raptors, uh, and for the better. Uh, so it's you know, you're part of that history, and and I think when I left, I left it better than when I found it, and 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 people beyond me, uh, notably Masai, have taken it to even new levels. So it's good to say that. Uh, you know, the franchise didn't go bankrupt or leave town under my watch, and uh, and I think it was better when I left. Uh, so I'm happy about that, and, and it's great that uh, people have taken it to a new level. You know, even as you're talking, it's just dawning on me, I hadn't even considered this, that uh, if we do buy into, at least in some point, that theory about Vince Carter having a huge impact on this franchise taking off, he was drafted by Golden State, and his dunk contest was in Golden State, and now they end up playing Golden State. I mean, it's a full circle kind of thing with this uh, with this team. How much different would the Raptors leg would the Raptors story be right now if Vince Carter though had made that shot against the 76ers in the playoffs a number of years ago and you had won that series? Because that would have meant that maybe some of the newness of this whole thing that everyone's going through right now might wouldn't be so new. It wouldn't be so unusual. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean. Uh... I think we could have beat Milwaukee uh, the next round. Uh, again, talking about uh, full circle, the the the, <laughs> the Raptors this year beat uh, Philadelphia to play Milwaukee. So uh, um, it's strange how life works like that. But you know, I, I think I think it would have been uh, further enhanced things. But I think it was so new to us 
that it was the fact that we made it that far was was really good. Uh, you know, the the the, the bar has been raised in the last six or seven years with the playoffs runs and, 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 you know, the expectations are higher and, and uh, I think it's just a, a different time now. And, and the Raptors have advanced so much that, that uh, it, it's even, it's even better now to know how difficult it's been and what a long struggle it's been to get to this point. And I think that's why you're seeing such great enthusiasm and joy. You have already a couple times mentioned Masai Ujiri uh, in the last few minutes. You're a very gracious man because everybody knows, like every coach and every general manager, you're hired ultimately to be fired, and that happened to you with the Raptors. Uh, do you? What do you feel about the Raptors right now? Is it difficult to feel happy or excited for them because of any lingering feelings, or is that in the past and you feel great for what's going on? Yeah, I feel great for what's going on. You know, it stung a bit when you whenever you get fired, obviously, and uh, but I'm over that, and I'm just uh, uh, I'm just really happy for everyone because again, I know how difficult it is and how much work's gone into it, and and I know how how loyal some of the fans have been. And see, and I go down to the uh, Scotiabank Arena, and uh, a lot of people have been there for the 24 years of this existence, and we reminisce a little bit about the early days and. Uh, in the nineties and, uh, and, and they've stuck with it for so long too. And it's, it's just great to see how, uh, how much they're enjoying things now. You're now in charge of not just the Raptors, you're in charge of basketball across this country at all the different levels. Uh, I think it, most people would say this has got to help in the growth of basketball, sort of the next step. Do you, do you share that? Oh, definitely. You know, I think, uh, We'll have more fans. We'll have more players. Uh, we'll have great stories to tell, like that uh, four bounce, the uh, last second shot in Game Seven against Philadelphia will will be legendary. Uh, but it it just it's just bringing more people to the game and bringing more appreciation to the game, and and I think you know more inspiration for young players to 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 pick up the basketball and and see what they can do with it and, and just have fun with it because it. I think the the one message that I that I'm getting out of this how fun basketball can be as a sport, either as a participant or as a as a fan. But it's a very you're you have taken over a, a sport in this country that would seem anyway, Glenn, to be in a pretty healthy place right now. I mean, right across the board at all the different levels. Yeah, it's going what great. So uh, you know, our, our women's team has been very good for a long time. We're ranked fifth in the world, and we're working to qualify for the Olympics in 2020. Our men's team just qualified for the World Cup. We won our pool, and we'll have uh, uh, you know our NBA players out this 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 summer. You know, hopefully competing for the World Championship uh, in China. Uh, and our our under 19 uh, men's team is is defending World Champions. So we're we're going to Greece uh, in July to defend the World Championship, and hopefully we'll come back with another gold medal. And, Looking forward to this this draft, the NBA draft on June 20th. We expect to have as as many as eight players drafted, which would be a new record. Uh, Canadians numbers drafted by the NBA, and, and uh, you know we hope to have you know as many as 25 players, Canadian players in in the NBA in the next year or two, and, and including uh, one of the guys who's being touted as a now a his his stock has risen, maybe a first round pick is a guy from Burlington, Mifiondo Cabangele. So. You know, we, we we like it when the local guys get drafted, like Shea Gilgis Alexander, and now him. Uh, this is uh, this is good for the local All Star team when we put one together. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, weird question. We only got a minute or so left here, but does this help? There, there are so many other levels of basketball that are on 
either now or will be again. You've got university basketball. You've got the Canadian Elite Basketball League, Hamilton, of course. The Honey Badgers now has a team in this. When the Raptors are doing this well, does it help those other levels of basketball or does it make them, do people then stack up and, and compare the two, which makes it difficult to compete if you're competing against the Toronto Raptors? No, I think I think the Raptors tide lifts all the boats in the basketball world. So it's it's been uh, it's been exciting, and I think we'll see more interest for for all levels of basketball, whether it's grassroots, high school, university, and college, or or, or the other pro teams like the CEBL. It's it's just exposing more people to the joys of basketball, and that's a good thing. Will you be at any of the games? Well, I'm actually in Vancouver right now, so we're going to have a, a watch party here at uh, a supporter of ours, and we're going to use it as a fundraiser for, for Canada Basketball's foundation. Any sightings of big country while you're out there? <laughs> I think he's in Oklahoma, according <laughs> to the documentary I saw. That's, actually, that's true, but I wonder when the last time was that he set foot in Vancouver. You, you would have noticed him if he was there, I think. Yeah, he'd be pretty obvious walking down the street. Glenn Grunwald, former general manager of the Raptors, now CEO and president of Canada Basketball. I always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this today. All right. Thanks, Scott. Uh, game one, tomorrow evening, of course, Toronto Raptors, Golden State Warriors. And yes, it is a weird little circle of life kind of thing that hadn't dawned on me until we were chatting with Glenn, that Vince Carter, who many people say was the the guy who really got the whole growth of basketball going in this country, he had originally been drafted by the Golden State Warriors, if you recall, and on draft day was traded for Anton Jameson, who the Raptors had picked. So you've got Golden State trading with the Raptors, and then Vince Carter goes down to Golden State for the dunk contest, which really made him a world star and a world brand, which really made the Raptors even more relevant which brought more Canadians, all the Canadian players in the NBA today, all of them will tell you that the moment or one of the things that dragged them into basketball was Vince Carter winning the slam dunk contest. And now it's the Raptors playing against Golden State in the finals. It's a perfect story. It's perfect. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. That sounds like the anthem of every politician, doesn't it? Tom Petty was channeling every politician who's ever walked the earth. I will not back down. I will stand my ground. I don't care if my idea is good, bad, fantastic, stupid, popular, unpopular. Well, no, actually, let me back up for a second. Tom Petty would have been challenging every politician if he said, I won't back down. Until the polls come in and I get some sense of where the winds are blowing and then I may change my opinion. That's really the more modern politician many times anyway. But I tell you why we played that song coming in, why Ben played that song coming in. Something happened this week and we've wanted to get to it this week. We just haven't had a chance, but we're going to turn to it now. We talked with Mayor Fred Eisenberger on this show on Monday. And the reason we had him on was you will recall that on Monday... Uh, Premier Doug Ford announced that he was going to be turning around from his original position and saying, you know what? No, we need to cut money from the budget. We know that. We are going to be asking the municipalities to find cost cutting. And we're going to be telling them they have to find it in their budget for this year. There was a huge blowback from mayors and from a lot of other people. And so on Monday... 
Premier Doug Ford said, I tell you what, we're not going to do that. Now, we're still going to be looking for savings and cities are still going to have to save money. They're still going to have to find cost savings. But they have all told us, according to him, the mayor, Fred Eisenberger, disagreed based on the comments that Doug Ford said all the mayors said something to him. Mayor Eisenberger said, I didn't tell him that. But anyway, Ford said, all the mayors told me we can find savings. We just need more time. We need more runway time. All of our budgets are done. It's really difficult now, almost impossible now without massive program cuts or huge tax increases. We can't do that. And so Doug Ford said, okay, we will give you until next year, at least. So here's the question, and I want to ask you today. I want your thought on this. I've been meaning to go to you all week about this one because it's been something that's really been of interest to me to know what the people would think on this one, what you people would think on this. When Doug Ford, when the Premier of Ontario, who has laid out a position that he is going to expect, that he is going to demand, when he gets blowback, when he hears from people, from mayors, from others who say, no, this is not a plan that we think we can do, but down the road, we think we can do it. Did Doug Ford capitulate? Was Doug Ford beaten back by the mayors of Toronto? Did Doug Ford give in and lose this fight? Or did Doug Ford listen and do the thing that he mentioned or that he said he did, which was that we are going to talk with the people, we're going to work with the people, we're going to cooperate with the mayors, we're going to cooperate with the cities. Did Doug Ford give in and lose a fight or did Doug Ford do politics the way that we oftentimes want politicians to do politics, which is to listen to other people and be willing to change their position if that position is not what the people want? What do you think? Where are you standing on this one? Was it a loss or was it a win? And I don't, you know, it's, I suppose it's inevitable that some of the people who we may hear from today are going to be falling along party lines. But I'm thinking more in the general concept. If a politician gives in against a group that is standing up or a swell of people who are standing up and they change their mind, is it a loss? Is it a weakness? Is it a, an embarrassment? Or is it a sign that they are doing what we want them to do, which is to listen to the people? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Those are the numbers today. Ben is in. You can call Ben. He'll put you on hold. We'll get you on the air. When you hear of something like this happening, do you look and say, that politician just got his backside handed to him? Or do you say, that politician did what politicians are supposed to do when there is something that happens and we speak out against it. What do you think? 905-645-3221, star 9900. I want to hear what you have to say on this one. Let's go to Doris first this evening. Doris, how are you tonight? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. Thanks for calling in. Where do you stand on this one? Well, I don't... Listen, none of the things that you said mean anything. When these polls came out this weekend... And the PCs were down to 28%, and the Liberals were back up to 40 It was like, oh, my goodness, for the PC party, and not from the province of Ontario, but from Mr. Shear. I'm quite certain that there were telephone calls galore. What are you going to do? We are going to be destroyed. We need the province of Ontario in this election to win. 
get your butt going. So this was not about listening to the people. This was about doing the politically expedient thing. Oh, you better believe it. Doris, I appreciate the call. Thanks for calling in. Glad to have your information. Glad to have your insight. Uh, There you go. So there's vote one, that this was not about listening to people. This was not about doing what people want. And therefore, you know, there might be someone with a different point of view from ours. This was about politics at the absolute core of this decision. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, you will recall the Premier of Ontario changed course on a plan that he had put in place and his government had put in place, and that was going to be to cut funding to municipalities, telling the cities that they also needed to find some savings. That was met with huge response. Lots of people upset about it, especially mayors and councillors, those who were going to have to reopen their budgets and start all over again and maybe cut programs or maybe raise taxes. Anyway, the question we're asking you today is when a politician does this, when a politician who faces criticism, sometimes firm criticism, sometimes more than that, and then changes course, is this an embarrassing loss? Is this a beatdown? Is this a butt whooping? Or is this doing what we, I think, most of us want politicians to do theoretically, and that is listen to the people. And if you propose an idea that is not popular, change course, do something different. Where do you see this one? Let me go to Ben. Ben, how are you today? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for calling in. Uh, where do you stand on this one? Is this, a, is this a big law, big embarrassing loss, or is this a, hey, we listened? No, I think it's a good decision. Um, I think if anybody's in their group of uh, co-workers or friends and they make a decision that's going to negatively impact everyone and they get that feedback, you would expect that they would then change course rather than dig their heels in. Um, so I think uh, it's a, a good decision to, to say they're going to give them time and consult them, but they could probably learn from it in that uh, maybe consult them ahead of time before making such drastic decisions like this. Ben, excellent point. Thank you for your call. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, 905-645-3221 or star 9900 if you want to have your say. Fred is up next. Fred, how are you tonight? Very good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. What do you think about this one? Where do you stand on this? I stand on this that uh, Doug Ford is very smart. He's got everybody on the same page now, and he's got them under his thumb. Because he can, uh, because he knows he can get rid of all the stuff that the liberals did before. Nothing's written in stone, okay? He can get rid of it. Only thing that's written in stone is Ten Commandments. So he can destroy everything that the liberals did for the last 15 years, which he's going to do. And now he's got everybody on the same page, thinking like they are. said, okay, I'll stand back a while where you guys can catch up with us. For next year, we're going to do our cuts. Fred, I appreciate the call. Thank you for that one. Uh, let me go to Stefan. How are you this evening, Stefan? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Now, uh, I'll ask you the same question. Is this an embarrassing big loss, or is this a politician who listened? No, I like to with, with the latter. I think it's a politician who listens. Why do you believe that? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, the reason I believe it is because, like I said, they're, they last call before you. Um, you know, people have been calling in and, and writing to the premier's office. Hey, this is not a good idea, right? Okay. So I'm thinking that's the way it, that's the way the premier decided to change his mind. Stefan, I appreciate the call. Thank you well, for your thank insight. You very much. 
Uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900, if you want to have your say in this one. Was this, when a politician changes course, is it embarrassing and is it a loss? Because that's how it's often positioned. Well, put it this way. If you are an opponent of said politician, you will always position this as proof that they were wrong, proof that they are weak, proof that they know they should have should not have done this in the first place, and this is an embarrassing politically damaging butt-kicking. If you are on the side of this politician, you will say, no, look, this is a guy who did something. Clearly, the people didn't agree with this. Everybody disagrees at times. He listened. He saw what people were saying. He heard from the mayors in this case and said, okay, I want to consult with you. I want to work with you. Two very different points of view on this one. Because one, as I say, is an embarrassment. One is a loss. The other is a commendable thing. The other is a, is a thing we should be applauding and I think asking more politicians to do. Let me go to Judy. Judy, how are you this evening? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm well. Judy, could you turn your radio down in the background? Just, just There yeah. we go. Thank you very much. I'm sorry. No problem. How are you tonight? I'm just fine. Excellent. I'm listening to the program. Um, I voted for Doug Ford because I thought that he would be kind of strong and everything. And then when the cuts started happening, and without really that much warning to everybody, and in all sorts of places, I thought, that's it. He's not getting my vote again. And now that he has backtracked on it, I don't think it's a cowardly way or anything. I think it's just common sense it would make to him. I mean, look, if I'm going to cause all this uproar in my party and with my constituents and everything in the province, why am I going to do this? Because I won't be in next time if I'm going to keep doing it. So I think he changed his mind and not necessarily uh, catering to us or anything, but just thinking it's got to be the smart thing to do. And there's nothing wrong with thinking that. Judy, I really appreciate your call. Thank you tonight. You're welcome. Uh, And you know, I mean, look, I don't think we can discount what the very first caller said. And that is that perhaps, well, politicians are politicians. Even if you're believing they're doing the right thing or not, there is another federal election coming up. You don't want to completely undermine Andrew Scheer. Here is one thing, though, that may be, may be clever about what Doug Ford did. And that is this. If the mayors or most of them did, in fact, say we can find savings as long as you give us more time, if that was in fact said, as Doug Ford said it was said, means that next year, those mayors are going to have to come up with some savings. Does it not? Kind of put them on the spot. Buys some time, but puts them in a position where they're going to have to come up with some savings. And if they don't, well, they know what's coming down the pipe. May may get him off the hook a little bit when more cuts have to happen. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.